0: as that of a Silenus. Then he talks about some letters which he finds in her in this box of letters that she keeps. The letters from university students were no less timorous though this was better concealed. You could tell how frightened each one of them was, how much trouble he took, how he weighed and measured his words in order to avoid falling into the abyss of his immaturity, his thighs, their thighs would not leave them in peace. There was an irresoluble conflict between the thigh, unconscious and dormant in its primitive verdure, and all the things that the head dreamt about. But for that very reason, there was never any reference to thighs, but a great deal about feelings, social or economic or society events, bridging, racing, and even about changing the structure of the state. The politicians, particularly those who clamored about student life, concealed their thighs with supreme ability, but sent the girl all their programs, proclamations, and ideological statements. Zutka, would you like to know what our program is, they wrote. But their programs mentioned thighs no more than their letters did, except occasionally by a slip of the pen. As, for instance, when one of them, instead of writing, the reputation of our country never stood so high, wrote the reputation of our country never never stood so thigh and another instead of writing the situation can be saved by resolute action not by sighing over past errors wrote the situation can be saved by resolute action not by thying over past errors apart from these two instances thighs were never mentioned They were similarly carefully concealed in the letters, incidentally distinctly lecherous letters, from the aged aunts who wrote newspaper articles about the jazz age and nudity on the beaches and tried to enter into spiritual contact with the girl to save her from perdition. Reading them created the impression that the question of thighs never arose at all. Moreover, at the bottom of the drawer was a pile of books, of verse of the kind current today, to the tune of two or three hundred or more, which it must be confessed the girl had neither read nor even opened, each was provided with a dedication, written in intimate, sincere, honest language, vigorously exhorting her to read the contents, or condemning her in studied and trenchant terms if she should fail to do so, exalting her to the skies for for agreeing to read them, or threatening her with expulsion from the elite if she did not, or imploring her to read them out of regard for the poet's solitude, or his labor, or his mission, or his status as a pioneer, or his soul, or his inspiration. Curiously enough, they did not mention thighs either. And still more curiously, the titles of their works did not do so. They were all about dawns, and daybreak, and new dawns, and the age of struggle, and the struggle of the age, and the difficult age, and the youthful age, and youth on guard, and the guardianship of youth, and militant youth, and youth on the march, and advancing youth, and bitter youth, and youthful eyes, and youthful mouths, and youthful spring, and my spring, and spring and me, and springtime rhythms, and the rhythm of machine guns, semaphore signals, aerials, and propellers, and my farewell, and my love, and my longing, and my eyes, and my lips, with not a trace of a thigh anywhere. And all this was written in poetical tones, with or without studied assonances, and with bold metaphors, and an intoxication with words, but there was practically nothing which revealed the slightest trace of thigh. Some of the writers with great skill and much poetic virtuosity concealed themselves behind beauty, technical perfection, the interior logic of the work, the logical flow of associations, or behind class consciousness, the struggle, the dawn of history, and other similarly objectively anti-thigh elements. (laughs) It was nevertheless obvious at first sight that all this versifying, with its forced and finicky mannerisms useful for nothing and to nobody, amounted to no more than a complicated cipher, and that there must be some good and sufficient reason behind the compulsion which drove these insignificant dreamers to compose such extravagant charades. After a few minutes' thought, I succeeded in translating into intelligible language the contents of the following. The poem, the horizon bursts like a bottle, the green stain mounts toward the sky, I return to the shade of the pines, and there I drink the last unassuaging cup of my daily spring. My translation, thighs, thighs, thighs. Thighs, 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 thighs. thigh. <laughs> thighs, thighs, thighs..
1: This is from the third volume of Combrovich's diary, which as yet does not exist in English, and since I'm only of Yugoslav and Hungarian descent and speak no Polish, I had to translate this from the French, which may sound dreadful, but almost every English novel, English translation of the novels of Gombrowicz is also translated from the French, for better or for worse, usually for worse, so at least I'm not alone in my sinfulness. Um, <clears throat> As you know, Gombrowicz spent 24 years in Argentina, and this, was, this happened during the next to last year that he spent there in 1962. Um, the person who is most mentioned is a writer called Vladimir Vedley, I guess we would probably call him Widley being Americans, but he's a Russo-French, he was a Russo-French essayist, belletrist, uh, philosopher, Man of Letters, very popular in the after the war period and I think rather forgotten now but perhaps somebody else will tell us more about it. His best known book has the title of something to do with bees. Do you have to remember the title? Um, I don't read books that have bees in their titles so I never <laughs> read them. Anyway. 10-10-1962, uh, <clears throat> Tuesday. Madariaga. Silone, Waidley, Dos Passos, Spender, Butor, Rob Grier, etc. They've all come to Buenos Aires as guests of the local pen club. By the way, I must tell you that I edited this very severely. I've omitted entire paragraphs, sentences, words, which is too bad, but I'm trying to keep it down to the prescribed time. Um, The local pen club. The meetings lasted five days and consisted of talking the audience's heads off on the topics, the word, the writer, culture, the mind, etc., as always. In vain did one hope that eventually something would happen. Not even a fly alighted on one of the bald heads, Occasionally, though, the meetings seemed to want to get a bit livelier, as if there were going to be some kicks and capers, but it always ended by fizzling out into drivel. I know this from what I've been told. I wasn't there. Why? Because the Argentine pen club didn't invite me. I've caused them too much grief, notably certain remarks on Argentine literature that I recently published in Cuadernos, Besides, if they had invited me, I wouldn't have gone. All these discourses on the writer's vocation to fight against mendacity, on his role as demystifier, when in fact they know they're merely blithering in exchange for the free trip they have been handed. (laughs) And they know that everybody knows that they know. A prostitute told me one day, Everyone sells something. Me, I'm selling my body. But she, at least, doesn't give lectures on authenticity as the basis for (laughs) perspectives on the development of culture. (laughs) Thursday. They're they're arriving one after another by train, by plane, by steamer. Having learned that Vladimir Wedley was there, I phoned him at his hotel. I didn't know him personally but he wrote me a few years back after reading Ferdi Durke. He averred that he had not forgotten me which may have happened. I never know what to expect on this slippery ground of what is in and proposed that I come to see him right away. The hotel, the lobby, bright lights, draperies. He's stepping out of the elevator with something in his hand. Pornografia in the French edition. That's of course the novel by Gombrowicz. And he tells me charmingly that he brought the book along especially from Paris in the hope of meeting me and having me inscribe it. I was charmed. I was breathing. But this very moment it was anger that I was breathing. And I knew that he knew it. One knows everything about each other among intellectuals. And then Hardly were we seated but that a reporter for La Nation threw himself at him in the company of a photographer. I suggested that we go to a small cafe to chat in peace. In the street, a little man hurled himself at him. I sensed something like a vague echo from the past. Suddenly, the little fellow turns to me. You don't recognize me? Aita! I greeted him as amiably as possible. It was Antonio Aita, the president of the local pen club, whom I hadn't seen in 23 years. Later, Vedley asked me a few questions that would have allowed me to let loose my sarcasm. How come I wasn't invited? This Aita, who was he? What had he written? Nothing. That's in parentheses in the text. Nothing. What sort of life was I leading here? I, however, let loose nothing whatsoever, prevented by lassitude, a kind of apathy toward London, Paris. I responded with easy-going politeness, but without wit or dazzle. Nothing sparkled anymore. The sun had set. He walked me back to Venezuela Street, where I lived, and, noticing the German edition of my diary, said this interested him. I eagerly gave him a copy. He is valuable to me, and I too play at politics. Saturday, stealthily I observe them in the lobby as I visit Vaidley. They are Europe. I have no desire to meet them. What good is it meeting? What good is a meeting to an unknown? They sit in armchairs or stand. The press has seized them. The hyena of journalism, with its claws in the exposed prey. I watch them holding forth, each in turn, slowly, with concentrated gaze, outstretched brow, each with a notebook before him, with the photographer, click. Next morning, I read in the paper the fruit of these confessions, Farrago, wasted effort. Could it be otherwise? Monday. It's torture. Nothing compromises an artist more than another artist. Truly, an artist catching sight of another should cross to the other side of the street. One is an artist for the non-artist, the semi-artist, the reader-receiver. But when one artist meets another, both are transformed into colleagues, pen club members. (laughs) These people were brought here from every point of the globe. Cassu is forced to exchange sweet nothings with Silone. Vedley saturates Madariaga with smiles. Butor bows to Dos Passos with things like, I'm delighted, enchanted, my congratulations, of course, with the greatest pleasure. They clasp hands with extreme caution, as if they were afraid of getting soiled. One re-encounters here all the punctilio of diplomatic teas. You'd think a circle of ancient countesses at an embassy. And for all that, they destroy one another, devalorize one another, disqualify one another. Having glimpsed me, young Michel Butor gets up from his armchair. You are known in France... I sink into him one of those gazes whose secret I have, and behind which I remain absent. But you, do you know my work? No reply. He has never read my books, nor I his. The critics, the theoreticians, can get away with it relatively well, but the pure artists, poets, novelists, nothing can save them. You'd say pieces of raw meat tossed out at feeding time or bones to be chewed on. But are they at least in pain? Does a secret protest torment these tourists of the mind? How far does their engagement go? I ask myself, are they corrupted to the marrow? Seated in my armchair, I observe the hand of Dos Passos lying inert and wilted on the arm of another chair. I look at this hand of a creator, a writer, and I perceive it as served on a plate with salad, mushrooms, and olive oil. The sleeve and the shirt sleeve attack it like an enormous spoon. The fingers of the hand remind me of a fork. I look and I think he is in the process of devouring himself with greedy teeth. This aggressively gastronomic and ironically alimentary thought is my armor against him. But what else is going on? There to the side Madariaga, beside him Silone, farther off, three ladies with Rob Grier, Casu in a fourth armchair, Butor in a corner writing a letter. And I in my armchair, who do not know Madariaga, who should know Silone, Shouldn't I ask Redley to introduce me to Rob Grier? Torture! Torture! My self-esteem howls like a dog. The panic of seeing what I despise most in the world, constraining and invading me. Me, in my human solitude, buried alive in Argentina these 23 years. Oh, oh, to show by one's entire life that one couldn't care less about honors make fun of all this mundane stuff, play the incorruptible, the inaccessible one, only to find oneself suddenly in the constellation of five armchairs, at the mercy of the most pretty bourgeois stupefaction, to feel in oneself the mundane demand to be admitted to this society, to become one of them. What would happen if it transpired that I had not been admitted?
2: Um, Well, we'll now go on to the second part of this evening. I don't know after this evening if Gombrowicz will be in, as it were. He was, of course, to the manor born, as this would suggest. I notice, however, that from this sign, as our audience keeps growing that if, it, if we pass 600 sitting down, we may have to end up as 900 dancing, which <laughs> may not be inappropriate. Uh, I will leave the floor now to Janos Klovatsky. <coughs> oh, can you can just sit there yeah. or wherever.
3: In the late 60s, when tension between Soviet Union and China was at its height, Chinese troops linking the banks of the river Amur would pull down their pants and flash their behinds at the Russian side. The Russian response was fresh. They decorated their side of the river with portraits of the Chairman Mao. Unable to flash their behinds in the face of their chairman, The Chinese retaliated by closing all Russian departments at their universities. I heard the story from a Chinese translator who forbidden to continue to translate Dostoevsky, consequently translated pick papers into Chinese. (laughs) So uh, Charles Dickens benefited. The second part of the story is closing in spirit to Kundera, Whereas the first part is a modern application of uh, Gombrowicz and Duel on faces, grimaces, and masks. Gombrowicz always thought of himself as a realist. It was in the mid-50s when a copy of Ferdy Durke, published before the war, fell into my hands. I was 14 then and being a student at a showcase Warsaw School of the Association of Children Friends. I was totally prepared for life. I knew about a dozen novels began with the lines The general and the commissar stared at each other in silence They understood each other without saying a word And another dozen which ended with the same two lines As far as Polish literature, I knew by heart the first two books Of Adam Mickiewicz's Pantadeusz and from word literature The last two parts of poem Gypsies by Pushkin who was friends with Michkiewicz, which uh, was evidence for long-standing tradition of Polish-Soviet friendship. I did know Dostoevsky, who had no Polish friends and believed in God. The non-existence of God was later, thanks to direct observation, confirmed by Soviet cosmonauts. <laughs> On a, On a history exam, I said that instead of studying history, one should create it. My teacher got scared, and I passed. (laughs) Still, still there were times when some things didn't seem to me to fit. But when I would ask my father, Daddy, why do people say one thing and do another, he would tell me, wait, you will understand when you grow up. (laughs) So my personality continued to harmoniously develop until a a neighbor who ran a private library out of his apartment was arrested for industrial espionage on behalf of Japan. And his wife uh, began to tearfully give away his books. I took ten of them on a trial basis. (laughs) Uh, Ferdi was squeezed between Robert Musil Young Torles and Dostoevsky Notes from Underground, which suggested that uh, the industrial spy knew a lot about literature. That was my spiritual condition when I immersed myself in the elements of Gombrowiczian Absurd. The setting was all wrong. The Poland of manners and gentry no longer existed, but in the landscape after the battle, the Gombrowiczian face and balm, that is deformation and degradation shine resplendent. Raised uh, until now on a literature whose eroticism consisted of an unrequited love for the motherland, I now fell into a world of highly illegal eroticism. Here a young master, a progressive masochist, attempts to break down class barriers and to fraternize with a stable boy the first lecture of the patient about egalitarianism and then in order to give the stable boy's courage ask and finally begs to be slept the stable boys firmly refused it is not until master widely screams hit me you bastard when the stable boy finally slacks him the slogan of the French revolution triumph and the master sees stars in his eyes I read these books in Poland where the division of lower and higher had been replaced by division between equal and more equal, and the st- stable boys were enthusiastically punching the masters out of their own personal initiative. <laughs> Gombrowicz language is a language of elemental parody, a playful mixture of styles, epoch, and convention, a language in mocker of life as well as of itself. But as parodid and the grotesque give no voice to emotion, Gombrowicz's uh, programmatically spontaneous writing resembles a masterfully played chess game. In chess, the black pieces are at a disadvantage. The white pieces start the game, the blacks are always a move behind. They respond, counter, and try to regain the initiative. Verdi Durke is a pastiche of Volterian philosophical allegory, transatlantic counter Mickiewicz's Pantadeusz, The Marriage, and Ivona parodistically recall Shakespeare. Gombrowicz uh, always plays, or shall I say writes, uh, on the black side. Gombrowicz uh, wrote several amazing plays, but he was never a theater goer. Perhaps the role of spectator, even of the, uh, at his own place, was not appealing enough. He preferred to perform and to direct himself. He performed every day, yet he was a fastidious actor. Viewing with disdain the roles life offered him, he inverted and revised them, multiplying their variants. Only afterward did he invite the audience. The rehearsals took place in the cafe, the premieres on the pages of his books, the reviews, the puns and the raves appear in his diaries. He played wherefore he was because playing and being are synonymous for Gombrowicz. He was at once Gombrowicz the aristocrat, Gombrowicz the pauper, genius and complete zero, the snob and anti-snob pole and anti-pole. He was a recluse in pursuit of company, the intellectual allergic to culture, the high priest of the avant-garde who neither knew nor respected the avant-garde. A mature man who was desperately in love in immaturity. A man who was sincere, sincere because he was artificial. Mm-hmm. Only the superficial, Oscar Wilde wrote in his portrait of Dorian Gray, don't judge by appearances. For Dombrowicz, appearances become an absolute. It's raised to the rank of a religious. Under the empty sky, people create their mask, painstakingly or pointlessly grimacing to exalt or to poo-poo each other. Another mask specialist, Alfred Jarry, identified so completely with his clownish hero, Uburoa, that even while he was dying, and to the horror of those present, he kept on making faces, determined not to put on the annoyingly majestic mask of, the de- of the death. He died without surrendering to the gravity of the end, a toothpick dandling from his mouth. I will conclude with a few words about the motherland, exile, sense of humor, and sense of the tragic. Schopenhauer wrote that national pride is the least valuable kind of pride. Any pathetic fool who has nothing also to be proud about clutches onto it as if it were his life belt. Out of gratitude, he is willing to sacrifice an arm and leg to defend any idiocy his country happened to represent. In his diaries, Gombrowicz investigated and with depressing accuracy documents the numerous uh, Polish achievement in this field. Schopenhauer noticed that there is a total, total lack of foreigners willing to pretend that they are German. In general, everybody pretends either to be French or to be English. I am afraid that finding a fake poll would prove even more difficult. <laughs> Gombrowicz knew this perfectly well. He writes in his diary that screaming out names of famous Paul will not help us. In the auction for the greatest number of geniuses with our half-French Chopin and not quite native Copernicus, we cannot compete with the Italian, French, German, English, or Russian. Witkacy, Katsy, is contemporary, a writer, a painter, and a philosopher, also ahead of his time, and also never cuddled by his compatriots wrote that there is only one thing worse than being born a henchback, that is to be born a henchback artist in Poland. (laughs) Of course, to be a Polish writer abroad is uh, at least as much of a nightmare. Wilhelm Kostrowitski considered (laughs) himself a Pole. Nevertheless, he wrote in French, published under the pen name Guillaume Apollinaire, and all his life tried desperately to become a, a certified Frenchman. Uh, to this end, he even voluntarily joined the French army during the war, suffering from a syndrome of patriotic exaltation his French, uh, his French friends made fun of. Gombrowicz uh, was made out of his Polishness and provincialism a bastion of self-defense. Shielded within it, instead of imitating Europe, he declared war against it. He revealed the shameful secret of the mediocrity, of Polish culture, he was in fact saving it from idiocracy. Patriotic slogan only made him grimace. No nation has needed laughter more than we do today, and never has a nation understood laughter's liberating role less, he writes in his diary. Diary. With few exceptions, Poles, both at home and abroad, responded to Gombrowicz laughter therapy with grim disapproval. Today he is published everywhere in the world, showered with international honours. Since his death, even Poles have become proud of him. We Poles uh, are also very proud of our John Paul II, but uh, I tell you something in confidence. Have the Poles been been the ones to elect the Pope, they would have surely chosen a Frenchman. (laughs)
1: subject of Gombrowicz rather indirectly and circuitously because I think I'm really the only non-Pole on this panel. I'm quite sure that Susan Sontag has traveled extensively in Poland and spoken and is read there is by now considered an honorary Pole and probably has a square named after her in Łódź which I used to pronounce. my grandfather
4: was born in Łódź.
1: Well, that's even better. So I'm a total outsider but I think since at least some of you here are not Poles, uh, it may be useful to recapitulate how an outsider approached Gombrowicz um, I was always struck by the greatness of the last line of Alfred Jarry's *Ubu Roi*, which I think is one of the great lines in all theater which as you know as <coughs> King Ubu and Mary Ubu are escaping I mean this thing isn't working oh, now it's working as you know, when King Ubu and his wife Mary Bu are escaping from Poland uh, by sea to Germany, which is a very Ubu-esque way of getting there, uh, they suddenly uh, see Germ- the shores of Germany and, uh, and um, <coughs> Mother Ubu says, that's Germany, a very beautiful country. And Father Ubu says, beautiful as it may be, it's not worth Poland. Because without Poland there wouldn't be any Poles. (laughs) It sounds better in French, uh, but it's it's not bad in English. Anyway, it's a terribly true line, and it is so true that it is even true when you stand it on its head that without Poles, there wouldn't be any Poland, which strikes me as even more tragically true. Now, it's very hard for a Yugoslav or a Hungarian, both of which I slightly am, to admit that there is a more tragic country in the world than Yugoslavia or Hungary. Nevertheless, I do think Poland is the most tragic country in Europe anyway, if not in the world. Or, if you like, the unluckiest, which comes to the same thing. And this, to me, has has always been a matter of... a a source of great uh, envy, on the one hand, and and, because I was not a Pole and could not lay claim to such a tragic heritage. But it, it made me very much aware that without Poles... Without a few famous Poles whom we heard about or read about or saw on the screen, there wouldn't be any Poland. Because effectively, it is a country that has more often than not not existed. It has always been invaded. It has always been partitioned. It has always been scratched from the map. And this, despite the fact that a Polish king saved Europe from the Turks, despite all kinds of magnificent Polish achievements, it was a country that was always disappearing. Um, so that what was left were the Poles. So that I think without these Poles, there wouldn't be any Poland. And that's what makes them so precious, these few outstanding Poles. But you see, unluckiness dogs the Poles as I see it. Um, there is something what I would call the Dioscuroi complex. Uh, as you know, the Dioscures or the Dioscuroi were a pair of divine twins in Greek mythology, Castor and Pollux, only one of whom was truly divine. The other one was only semi-divine. Castor was the real thing and Pollux was only half the real thing. But together they performed heroic actions. Nevertheless, in the end, only Castor was admitted to Olympus and Pollux, I don't know what the hell became of him, Hades, most likely. Anyway, the Poles seem to have, in, in, in the rest of the world, always suffered from this Dioscuroi complex. That there were always two in every field that were somehow competing against each other Sometimes they were perhaps equally divine. At other times, one was more divine than the other. But somehow, two poles was always more than the market could bear. And it somehow always managed to do damage to the poles. I follow this in many fields. For example, I'm also a film critic. And in film, all of a sudden, two Polish directors burst up on the film scene. Andrzej Wajda and Andrzej Munk. Now, Vaida is a very brilliant and a very great and a very wonderful director, but Munk may have been even greater. Of course, he had the misfortune of dying young, and somehow Munk got swept under the carpet, and the very great and very worthy Vida, who still, I think, was a little more of a Pollux, uh, got all the recognition. Uh, later on, on the film scene, again, two Poles appeared simultaneously, Roman Polanski and Jerzy Kolimovsky. In this case, case, I think Polanski and Skolimovsky were equally talented, and their strength would have been to stay together, the way Castor and Pollux stayed together. But unfortunately, and when they stayed together and did Knife in the Water, they did something magnificent. When they went off each on his own, they became less wonderful, uh, and they suffered from it. Um, The same thing happens everywhere. In music, for example the Poles produced a very major 20th-century composer, uh, Karol Szymanowski. But in the early days, one always saw in, on record jackets and wherever that Szymanowski was the second best Polish composer after Chopin. And I think this did him terrible harm. People must have said, well, if Chopin is the best, why should we bother with the second best? And this went on for, for years. You never could read about Szymanowski, who I think is very great indeed. Uh, uh, without be, being told that he was only second best to Chopin. Um, I'm surprised they didn't say he was second best to Moniuszko while they were at it. But anyway, um, then uh, later, just when, when sort of finally it looked as if Szymanowski were going to come into his own, suddenly there was a Penderecki and a Lutoslavsky on the scene. And again, that was a Castor and Pollock situation. Suddenly there was Penderecki and Ludoslavsky, and I think Ludoslavsky is infinitely greater than Penderecki, but somehow Penderecki has managed to, until recently, push him into the background. Uh, but the two of them together managed to push Shimonovsky into the background, so that there's always this, this, this dioscuroi situation where one pole somehow uh, muddies the waters for another, unintentionally or intentionally, as the case may be. Um, so, so in that sense, I think Gombrowicz has suffered from the same thing. In the early days when Gombrowicz might have been known, as, um, he was always somehow overshadowed by Vitkiewicz or Witkacy, uh, who, who of course is better known as a playwright, but Gombrowicz is also very well known as a playwright. And somehow the Vitkatsi plays, perhaps because they were translated better into English or, or more... Uh, availably into English, managed to overshadow the plays of Gombrowicz, and they still do. Um, As a prose writer, um, again, I think uh, Gombrowicz was always in the shadow of somebody else. Uh, Perhaps it was Bruno Schulz, perhaps it was Jerzy Andrzejewski, I don't know, but there was always somebody else who who seemed to be better known than Gombrowicz. and this, I think, uh, was an unfortunate situation which had to be changed. Mind you, there have been Poles who are even more unfortunate than Gombrowicz. I think there are two essential Poles whom we don't know at all yet. One is Tadeusz Zelensky, whom we must get to know and don't know at all in this country. And another one is someone whose autobiography, I think, is a masterpiece, although his other writings are less so. And that's Stanislav and his autobiography must become available in English well anyway Um, so Gombrowicz finally is beginning to come out of the the dark and becoming himself but he is still up against a lot of misunderstanding and I want to read you just two very brief uh, evaluations of him by leading American critics which I think, oh no one of them is actually English, which I think have done him They are just in a way, but they're also very harmful in a way. But they're the sort of thing that I think um, Gombrowicz must overcome. One is a statement by D.J. Enright, a very fine English poet and critic, in the New York Review of Books in 1967. He was reviewing Pornografia and Ferdi Durke, and he said, One realizes and admires Gombrowicz's sensitiveness and subtlety but would like to know what he is sensitive to and subtle about." Now I think the trouble there was that that, uh, Enright was reviewing two other bad English translations of these novels, based not on on the Polish original, but either on French or German or French and German translations. The other, I think, significant attack, also leveled against these two novels, which came out more or less simultaneously, is by John Updike, and appeared in The New Yorker, also in 1967. Myself, I must register my sensation that Ferdi Durke, a book about the imposition of form, has itself more the form, the assurance, the daring of greatness, than the substance and here again you see the trouble is that um, an American or English writer is always looking for the substance but a Pole who comes from a non-existing country who like Gombrowicz has completely uh, unmoored himself uh, cut the moorings from Poland would have to be subtilized into into thin air would have to be brilliant and sensitive and uh, Uh, and um, how should I say subtle about something that really doesn't exist and I think it is a greater subtlety a more amazing subtlety when it is about something that really isn't tangibly there and I want to give you an example of of, in closing of what I consider the great subtlety of this man and a typical passage from one of his writings no this is not it and I'm very glad it comes from the same passage the same admirable passage that Susan uh, read most of and I was trembling that she would read this part as well but luckily for me she did not Um, it is also part of the description of what the room of the modern young girl is like it says next to the divan bed was a little black school desk with books and exercise books on it On top of the exercise books was a nail file, and on the windowsill a pen knife, a cheap fountain pen, an apple, an exam syllabus, a photograph of Fred Astaire, and another of Ginger Rogers, a packet of scented cigarettes, a toothbrush, a tennis shoe, and in the latter, a flower, a forgotten carnation. That was all. How little, and yet how much. I remained silent in the face of the carnation. I could not withhold my admiration from the girl. What subtlety she showed in dropping the carnation into the shoe. She killed two birds with one stone. She spiced love with athleticism and athleticism with love. It was not an ordinary shoe, but a tennis shoe damp with sweat. For she knew the sweat that comes from playing games is the only kind not damaging to flowers. In associating it with the flower She made it attractive Added it to it something flowery and charming What a cunning creature Ordinary, naive, old-fashioned girls Grew azaleas in pots But she dropped a flower But she dropped a flower into a shoe A sports shoe What is more, she had certainly done it accidentally Unconsciously, without thinking What a little virtuoso so notice how what this passage does first it praises the girl for her great wisdom in knowing that the only kind of sweat that is not damaging to a flower is that which is caused by sportive activities and then it tells us that she dropped a flower in there accidentally, unaware of what she's doing therefore this great knowledge of the natures of different kinds of sweat is of course total bull uh, so it is Again, you know, you have, you have an example of a man doing something wonderful out of something that doesn't exist. The kind of sweat that does not hurt a flower has not yet been invented. But Gombrowicz has invented it, he has described it, and he has made a charming passage out of it. I think this is a magical greatness, and to be
5: appreciated.
0: For a very long time, I didn't like Gombrowicz's work. Or I shouldn't say that I didn't like it. I I had a very strong resistance to it. Uh, every time I lighted on some passage, and I've been buying his books uh, for years. Uh, sometimes in French because of the, the the books have taken uh, some time to uh, some some long time to come into English and. Uh, only now do we have the first volume of the diaries that's just coming out this month, published by uh, Northwestern University Press. But the diaries had appeared, as John Simon said, uh, indicated in French uh, many years ago. Anyway, I would read uh, fragments of the novels. I've seen some of his plays performed in, uh, in France, and in Italy, and even in Poland. Uh, and I've read parts of the novels, parts of the diaries, and I always got very, very angry uh, with Gombrowicz. I saw his quality as a writer; it's it's irrefutable. But uh, I minded very much uh, his contempt for culture, his contempt for seriousness, his. Uh, I minded his immaturity. I thought it was inappropriate. I liked uh, it when it was. Uh, I liked it when it was about erotic subjects because that seems to me perennial. But when he was accusing people um, and, and society of being so serious, of being so pretentious, of being so intellectual, of being so mindlessly respectful of the serious and of art and of intellect and of abstract ideals, I thought, well, lucky him to have been brought up in a society with so much hypocrisy. Uh, I do not. Uh, I'm not brought up in such a society, even though all four of my grandparents were born in what was then not Poland, but is today Poland. Uh, I am an American, and uh, I don't, I'm not brought up in a society in which people are so respectful of high culture that I find it terribly entertaining when a writer instructs me all the time that we have backsides uh, uh, and not just heads, uh, that we have a low carnal desires, not just high spiritual longings. It seems to me that my culture, if you can call American culture that, is instructing me all the time that we have base, immature, low desires, that everybody is cynical, that, that everything is a fraud, that everybody's only interested in personal advantage, that there is no seriousness, that there is no idealism, that everybody's a crook, uh, that everybody is base and cheap and trivial and immature, and I don't need to have this told to me by a Polish writer who was born into an aristocratic society against which he revolted. But that society doesn't exist anymore anyway, it's not my society. Uh, so, as I say, I had a, a hard time to come to really admire and enjoy Gumbrovitz, which I hasten to add I have done, otherwise I wouldn't be here. Uh, but I didn't find him immediately appealing. I found him, on the contrary, immediately uh, antipathetic. I thought he's one of those, uh, those sophisticated uh, anti-intellectuals ant- intellectual that brought the civilization I really care about down. He's one of the people that contributed to the contempt for civilization that is the ruling idea in civilization at the end of the 20th century of the euro-american civilization i didn't like his contempt for civilization i didn't like his utopianism of the naked or immature person anyway it isn't uh, egotism as such, it's his egotism, the terms in which it was uh, presented. Uh, his cult of uh, youthfulness, for example. Uh, I didn't like his contempt for truth in the name of honesty. He talks all the time about honesty, but it seems to me there's a contempt for truth. He's for honesty, but he's against truth, it seemed to me. Well this was an attitude that I struggled with for, for a very long time and I have gone beyond it but I want to say that uh, Gombrowicz still makes me uncomfortable and perhaps that's good, perhaps he would approve of that although I'm not saying that I, I I have this attitude or choose to express it tonight because I think he would approve I don't think he's an easy writer, I don't mean he's not an easy writer to read he's extremely accessible uh, even in the, the less than than adequate uh, uh, translation of the novels such as they do exist and I hope they will be retranslated or what seems to be the excellent translation that's been undertaken now of the diaries. Uh, He is a very readable and accessible writer, but he's a writer who does make me very uncomfortable. Uh, uh, I don't uh, um, enjoy a certain kind of laughter uh, that uh, uh, that seems to me facile that Gombrowicz uh, elicits because I, th- I think there is there is a, a way in which the Gombrovitz phenomenon Gombrovitz message fits all too well with the cheap cynicism that is uh, prevalent in our era I don't believe that his cynicism is cheap on the contrary what finally has seduced me and I have ended being seduced by him as a writer um, is that he is uh, someone, and I don't—I don't mean this word in a literal social sense. He is someone who, who lives and uh, in the realm of and espouses, uh, even in the very contradiction of them, noble values. His uh, um, urge, his his urging upon us the duty of honesty. The passion of his criticism of society and the conduct of individuals, the uh, the kind of erotic fantasy which he expresses, the playfulness, the fascinating uh, experiments in form. He's a writer who thought a lot about form as a writer. Uh, All of these come out of a very noble conception of the literary vocation, a great love of literature. Uh, When he speaks of himself, uh, in connection with Cervantes and Montaigne and Rabelais, and sees his own work as related to the work of Montaigne and Rabelais and Cervantes. He's not kidding. He's absolutely serious. And his work is in that tradition. I think he really is a great writer. Uh, I think he's a tormented writer. I think he is he is a is a, a, a writer who, because of his very particular situation and and the little that I know about Poland and having Polish ancestors, of course, doesn't mean a thing at all, Uh, my attachment to Poland, however, is a very strong one. I have a very strong attachment to Polish culture, so far as I can know it um, in various forms and in written language and translation. Uh, He's a very, very Polish writer. And hard to uh, fully appreciate, I don't want to say unless you 're Polish because I feel I do appreciate him, but unless you take into account some sense of his Polishness and of particular Polish dilemmas, a sense of being an outsider to European culture and being part of European culture is essential to his work. I believe very much in the position of the outsider. I think it is the most creative position uh, he he was uh, lost in exile through a a, a very grotesque accident of history, arriving for two weeks in Buenos Aires in August 1939 and staying, I misspoke before, I said 34 years, he stayed 24 years, still the better part of what was not, after all, a very long lifetime. So he became uh, doubly an exile from Europe. He was a a European uh, in South America, a very remote part of South America, and he was a Pole among Europeans. He had an extremely complicated stance. I think, ultimately, he was not a nihilist. I think he is a defender of literature and a part of literature, of serious literature. But I want to, in what I understand to be a a chorus of admiration, to, for my own little contribution to, to the dialogue here, say that I don't think that we should just enjoy or at least I cannot, simply uh, enjoy his mockery of high values without making an effort to situate it in the light of his own performance and many other things that he says about writers and about literature and the holiness of the literary vocation. If he makes fun of a pen congress that took place in Buenos Aires, it's not simply out of thwarted uh, ambition and because... uh, (coughs) And, and because he was not invited you know, in a kind of Groucho Marx spirit, uh, I, I wouldn't want to belong to a club that would have me as a member, uh, it's because he knew or thought that he was better than the other writers he, that he met there or spied on in the hotel lobby, and maybe he was. But it's not simply out of ambition or, or, or out of contempt for other people or out of, out of desire to be immature that he took what often seems to me uh, to be very fierce and anti-intellectual and anti-cultural stances. I cannot accept Gombrowicz unless I see him as defending the nobility of literature and of the literary enterprise. I, because I do believe that that's what he's doing, I can accept and enjoy and relish and laugh uh, at, at these Very cynical and harsh attitudes. But if the attitudes are taken out of the context of his respect for literature, then they are cheap shots. Uh, And I don't think that uh, we should, we need any more people to be telling us that ideals are a fraud. We hear that every day.
5: I guess I am the only person here who was a personal friend of Gombrovich and had uh, occasions to, to talk and to discuss various things with him. Moreover, I taught Gombrowicz at the University of California at Berkeley for several years. I had uh, seminars on Gombrowicz. And I discovered then uh, how difficult it is for Americans to grasp what is Gombrowicz about. He's a very difficult writer. And I don't know, one should analyze, uh, but it would uh, lead us too far, uh, what are real, real reasons of a considerable resistance uh, of young Americans when, who, however, when they grasp the trend suddenly are enchanted, but enormous resistance. And as to my personal relations with Gombrowicz, Gombrowicz was a domineering personality and he had a need to dominate a partner in discussion, absolutely, using all means, teasing attacking weak points And if I survived (coughs) those encounters, uh, it's rather I am proud of that. (laughs) Because uh, he found in me a rather staunch uh, antagonist. Uh, Now, however, I would like to to share with you some of my uh, views on Gombrowicz. Uh, I would start with his, his presenting uh, his views on painting and poetry. Uh, gombrovich maintained that uh, there is not no such a thing as painting, especially easel painting, that that's an invention. Uh, absolutely unnecessary, that painting is not, nobody needs painting, that it was created artificially, and of course you can imagine reactions of painters hearing such opinions. (laughs) He were ready to kill him, destroy him, and one of them, uh, Jean Dubuffet, took it very seriously, French painter, and engaged in a long conversation with Gombrowicz on the subject. But Gombrowicz had a very good argument why he considered painting uh, a result of a completely artificial need. He said I am I can explain very simply I take you uh, I uh, take you to prison put in a cell and deprive you uh, of uh, cigarettes for 10 days you would survive because cigarettes is an artificial need but if I deprive you of bread for 10 days we'll see that, that would be something different and this distinction, extremely brutal, goes uh, straight to Gombrowicz's uh, philosophy, uh, going to uh, element some elemental uh, realism. Uh, trying to touch reality. Uh, though, of course, as far as painting, he knew very well the value of <laughs> modern painting and so on. That was a lot of But as to poetry, of course, he maintained that nobody needs poetry because nobody reads poetry today. (laughs) That this is a sweet secret uh, maintained by the critics, by by the public, and he says that it's possible that today there are great poets whom nobody reads, modern great poets, recognized as great poets, however, nobody uh, read by nobody. And uh, in his attack on poetry, uh, I was the only among the poets who would agree with Gombrowicz, <laughs> trying to transgress poetry as insufficient gain. Uh, so I give it uh, to, uh, um, uh, as an introduction, but in fact I want to speak of something else. Gombrowicz uh, returns now to Poland. Uh, he is published, he is recognized as a, a great uh, writer. Uh, but he returns to Poland, very strange Poland, Poland uh, of uh, great piety, Roman Catholic piety, and masses and uh, full churches and so on. He, an atheist and destroyer of uh, uh, many values, and he is uh, so to say uh, tamed. He is tamed because he was uh, uh, tried to be a jester, and he uh, just he's a jester and he plays games, and so that kind that uh, sort of uh, mocking attitude and humor can uh, uh, hide his uh, philosophical intent, his philosophy, and his, uh, um, uh, I should say, uh, very pessimistic vision of the world. Uh, They also connected with his desire to be a, a kind of a teacher, even a prophet. If you take the diary published now in English, it is fierce in its attacks. Fierce. That's a book which doesn't uh, doesn't leave uh, any uh, sacrosanct uh, names in Poland uh, uh, safe uh, any values. He is uh, st- uh, terribly destructive. And my mission, I consider. Uh, to some extent at the present moment is to stress this vitriolic quality of Gombrowicz's uh, philosophy and Gombrowicz's writings, not in order to disparage him, but to be close to his intention, his hidden intention, namely to, he, ha- he, ha- he visualize himself as somebody who wants to liberate the Poles from Poland to make them free, to liberate them from false values which they adore because they serve their national purposes, and bring them back to uh, serious problems, I guess for him serious problems, uh, go uh, back to Schopenhauer, Nietzsche, Dostoevsky. He is, he is the most Schopenhauerian writer among the, uh, the, the 20th century writers. His vision is very, very black uh, of, uh, of, of nature and of human nature. And though he was an atheist, he uh, used to say that Roman Catholicism for him is uh, 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 dear because it has a pessimistic vision of man. And he wanted to uh, liberate the Poles from their kind of Roman Catholicism, their kind of Catholicism, which is a Catholicism of children protected by father. Uh, Roman Catholicism, you can find that in the diary, uh, in Poland, is a Catholicism of the world where there is no evil, because evil is outside. Evil are Germans, Russians, but <coughs> evil, in fact, it doesn't exist in a good world created by good father. And so he want he was against that strongly. He wanted to see a more <coughs> profound Catholicism. If they, if you want to be Catholic, be be true believers, and not, as he said, don't use. Marx as a uh, uh, don't don't use God as a pistol to kill Marx. (coughs) So his intent was very serious. Now what uh, 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 Susan said about her difficulties with Gombrowicz. Of course, I understand that very well, because basically. Gombrowicz uh, is a writer of European nihilism, a European nihilism in the sense uh, prophesized by Nietzsche. Uh, because what is his theory? Gombrowicz's theory of the interhuman church. Interhuman church means that we create each other constantly. Human society. Uh, uh, it consists in people creating each other and also we we, we make clo- small circles where we create each other, we are determined each other, we are constant in actors and where is then the notion of uh, objective truth? There is, there is nothing. There is only uh, our mutual creation and uh, when he, for instance, speaks of Simone Weil in his diary, uh, he says, yes, I feel presence of God when I read her, but not of God, but of her God. And she is a carp prepared in a metaphysical source of her own making. So this is extremely, this is corrosive let us, let us uh, do not doubt. Uh, he, he is a corrosive writer. Uh, um, one can ask if there is uh, no notion of objective truth, uh, why that rebe- constant rebellion of Gombrowicz against inauthenticity, against form, or to this he would, wouldn't be able to answer. Uh, our quarrels with Gombrowicz Uh, usually uh, were about philosophy, and Gombrowicz was extremely well uh, trained in philosophy. He was much more serious than his uh, pranks and his uh, uh, buffooneries uh, would prove. He was concerned basically with one issue, whether the world exists outside of our perceptions. That was a basic Problem of Gombrowicz, uh, he, he reproached Descartes with being a coward because he, he used God in order to guarantee the existence of, uh, of things. And he, uh, he, he went very far in, in criticism, uh, for instance, criticism of, uh, of Kant and of, of Husserl and so on. So that was the point where we uh, basically differ uh, but uh, I, uh, I say those things uh, just to, uh, to, 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 to bring uh, home uh, that Gombrowicz, uh, peculiar Gombrowicz, who, however, was a defender of simple value of honesty, of uh, authenticity, of honor, And he said, don't make out of me a cheap demon because I will be on the side of simple human values even if I am dying. So he was a very complex personality. But by destroying practically all Polish literature in his fierce attacks, fierce criticism, he had something uh, different vision in mind, liberation. What, what is the role of Gombrowicz at the present moment in Poland? Uh, I cannot tell. For me, it's a, it's a surrealistic return of Gombrowicz to Poland. He, maybe he should have returned to Poland earlier or later. But at this moment, it is kind of an incredible chaos in the mind. And I, I don't I, I, I wonder what that uh, pilgrimage to Tohova, uh, with Gombrowicz volumes in the pockets, can can mean. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
2: I thought that we would give the members of our panel some time just to discuss among themselves, not too long, because I know there are some anxieties out there to intervene. And after that, we will throw it open to the floor, and there are eventually two mics down here on the front, but uh, can we just open it up to our panel initially?
1: Let me say this, because it would not have been seemly for Mr. Miwash to say it, that from reading the first and the third volumes of the diaries, I haven't read the second. I can say that only three writers, and I don't mean just Polish writers, three writers, to court, come off well in those diaries. One of them is Bruno Schulz, although there's a certain condescension, but nevertheless there's also admiration and respect. The other one for a while is Witlin, the poet, not Witkatsy, but then Witlin is praised in the first volume, but in the third volume, he gets it in the neck. And the only one who comes off really quite well is Czesław (laughs) Miłosz. I
0: think think it's wonderful that we do have the diaries, because the uh, the novels have, have existed in English for several decades, not very much read, but they were translated uh, uh, in the 60s. Uh, three of them, anyway, were translated in the 60s. Not very well translated, I understand, but they, they existed. But uh, the diary, the, the diaries, of which we have the first volume now, uh, gi- give them a context. Uh, and I think they, they, um, we need more than, than, than just reading Gombrovitz to understand Gombrovitz but I think the diaries help enormously uh, to situate the novels, and in particular to situate both the, what Cheswoff has described so well as the, the corrosive element, which, which should not be tamed, and the prophetic element, the teacherly element, which is so strong. Uh, I, I just one of the passages that I noted in the diaries where, uh, that fits perfectly with with what Cheswav said, if I uh, may I read it. Um, he says, my art is important to me and it needs noble, hot blood. Art and rebellion are almost identical. I am a revolutionary because I'm an artist and as much as I am him, the entire thousand year process from which I derive, sown with names like Rabelais and Montaigne, Lautreamont, and Cervantes, was an uninterrupted incitement to rebellion, sometimes on the scale of a hushed whisper, other times exploding with full voice. And then further down this same passage, this is page 191. If I am a child, then I am a child that has passed through Schopenhauer and Nietzsche's school. So I I think that it's impossible to... to, uh, uh, read Gombrowicz and to underestimate the rebelliousness the corrosiveness the r- very radical challenge that his work offers but it would be equally wrong not to situate him in the full uh, context of uh, of European literature uh, uh, certainly i agree that citing the name of of schopenhauer and nietzsche would be crucial in seeing what this nihilism is about i mean it is if anything, I, I've come so far in my thinking about Gumbrovitz that I'm I'm on the other end. Far from thinking he's a nihilist, I think sometimes he's much too optimistic about what the undefended human being creating himself or herself with others can actually do. But that's only to show how, how complex uh, uh, he becomes. The more you read him, the more complex he is as a writer. I mean, he's a writer who really is nourishing, a writer you can return to. And as far as I'm concerned, that's the... The very first definition of what is literature is that it needs not only can be reread; it needs to be reread. Anything that doesn't need to be, or you don't want to reread it, and doesn't become deeper and more interesting when you reread it, isn't part of literature.
5: You see, there is some uh, sort of parallelism uh, between Marxism and Gombrowicz's philosophical thought, and he considers himself. Uh, after all, uh, his uh, his vision of God created by human beings is very close to Ludwig Feuerbach, who who really was the father of Uh, of Marxism and uh, Russian Marxism too. Uh, Gombrowicz was not uh, a Marxist, not at all. But there are some parallelisms, because in my interpretation uh, Marxism uh, is a phenomenon uh, is uh, the same, belongs to the same range as uh, European nihilism advanced uh, prophesied by Nietzsche. And if we take Dostoevsky, who was uh, undoubtedly a prophet, if we take uh, brothers Karamazov and especially Ivan Karamazov and his legend of the Grand Inquisitor, uh, you see there the whole same ferment which can branch into Marxism uh, or into sort of philosophy of Gombrowski.
1: I may say something in defense of the passage I read from Gombrowicz. I did not read it in the spirit that he was necessarily making fun of those other writers. I read it essentially in the spirit of his profound ambivalence about everything. You notice that in that passage he makes as much fun of himself as he does Mm -hmm. of anybody else and that always he is questioning whether something isn't less equally true as its opposite, whether the opposite isn't equally true as itself, whether being successful isn't as good or as bad as being unsuccessful, whether being a coward, but a coward of extreme cowardice isn't a kind of heroism in itself. Um, And so that on the one hand, he always admires extreme things, but then at the same time, he will come out in the diaries and say, I'm translating, Uh, Two fanatical artists have always irritated me. I detest poets who are too poets. Painters who are slaves, too much poets. Painters who are slaves of painting. Generally speaking, I demand of people that they dedicate themselves to nothing exclusively. I ask of them always to preserve a certain distance with with relation to what they do. Uh, I find that admirable, this this ability to stand a little bit back from what you're doing and not lose perspective on it. It allows you to be ironic, it allows you to be witty, but it also allows you to be profound.
0: Yeah. I'm sorry that John Simon has seen fit to uh, to couch his, uh, his reading in a more, more humanistic mm. and positive terms, I thought actually was quite worthy of Gumbrovitz for him to choose of all the possible passages from the diary, uh, the one which, which made fun of Penn, see, seeming, uh, seeing as this was a penn-sponsored event, seemed to me that uh, co-sponsored by Penn. It seemed to me that something that Gumbrovitz would very much have approved of. Uh, and uh, so I think that w- one ought to uh, also ought to let Gumbrova's mockery of Penn and there is real mockery of Penn stand
2: perhaps we should just go ahead and open, the, open up the discussion to the floor and perhaps the person who was more of demanding the mic before can have it to start with You may want to come up to the microphone that's here uh, I would like to ask Mr. Simon where did he get all this notion about Poland as being the most tragic uh, country in Europe? Uh, where did he get it? why is he comparing for example, uh, Vida with Munk uh, where all this uh, I I got an impression that you have sort of delivered a whole bunch of very cliché statements about Poland and I sort of uh, felt uh, that I would like to know uh, why at this day and day and age we still you, you feel appropriate uh, in speaking about Polish literature to not to go behind what is basically approved or known as things relating to Poland in American culture. Well,
1: I, I take it that you are Polish. Uh
2: sort yeah. of.
1: Yeah. Well, I think it takes a Pole to consider being called the most tragic country an insult. I think it is part of the pathos and, and, and tragedy of being Polish not to be able to take a compliment gracefully. Uh, I think it is not generally known to people that there was a great director called Andrzej Monk hiding behind the shadow of Andrzej Wajda. It may be known to film people, of course, and it may be known to uh, experts on on Polish culture, but I think it is helpful to remind Americans and others who are not Polish, and even some Poles of this fact. I think it is a scandal that an opera of the magnitude of King Roger by Szymanowski has not been performed in New York, to my knowledge, ever. Oh yes, it has been performed on the West Coast in yeah. some ghastly, some <laughs> ghastly travesty—a kind of Peter Sellersy version of it. <laughs> uh, so that I mean, you know, it may be that it's cliche, um, that everything I said is cliche, but some cliches are, are are worth repeating. I mean, Jean Cocteau, for example, was a great believer in the cliche, and wrote some very eloquent things in defence of it, to which I fully subscribe. Certain good things cannot be repeated often
2: enough. Thank you.
5: I'm also a pole, and as as such, I feel obliged to uh, spoil only slightly. Uh, what Czesław Miłosz so beautifully described as a surrealistic return of uh, Gombrowicz to uh, contemporary Poland which is even more surrealistic than that any, any writer could have even imagined. Incidentally I belong to a post-war generation of Pols who were uh, their early uh, developmental stages when Felty uh, Durk was published in 1956 it was published after the war and I grew up along with my generation on that. So if it spoils your story, I'm sorry, but I think that we owe this to the, the editors who managed to sneak it through through the, the powers that be at that time. Thank you. I, I have nothing to say. That's fine. Thank you.
2: In a pause, it might be actually worth making a comment that has once or twice sort of been hinted at during the discussion, and that is that while while Gombrowicz's writings, at least the novels, have been available in other languages than English, and they have been available, sort of, in English since the late 1960s, they are available in translations that anyone who reads them needs to be aware they are complete distortions of what Gombrowicz's writing is all about. In fact, one of the one of the I'm uncomfortable with calling him a nihilist, at least on the base of his writings. I didn't have the pleasure of knowing him, although I gather it's a somewhat dubious pleasure of knowing him personally. But through his writings, he, he and again, I think Susan Sontag's um, comment about his ambivalence is instructive here. At the same time as he is indeed making a fairly slashing attack on what I suppose might be understood as at least for Gombrowitz is a kind of misuse of high culture. He is, at the same time, it seems to me, trying very hard to get behind that to find ways of building up, in a sense, what might be a new culture. I take the example, if I may, just a second, of the novel Cosmos. Um, I believe I'm right in saying that was his last published novel, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I think so. And that was put into English in 1968, I think I'm right in saying, or 60, 68. Um, in what is called A Version, which was based, as John Simon commented, on non-Polish languages. It it came from French and German. And the... 67, 67. Yeah. And um, what this novel is, in the original... First of all, it's written in a kind of an an archaic form of Polish, I understand, but also it, it, it distorts the use of the language. Deliberately it is it is undermining. It's kind of a de- it's it's a detective story in reverse in a sense It starts off with the idea of how you go about searching for, for a plan hence the title cosmos how you create order in a world that is essentially chaotic and Then the story in a way talks about how you in fact then create the murder by Making this order and this, of course is part of his attack on culture part of the attack is precisely the complete undermining of language. Unfortunately, the English version um, organizes the whole novel. It turns it into a, into a fairly traditional kind of linearly narrated story, and uh, I think if anyone is turned on by, by the little bits and pieces that have been presented this evening, someone might well think very seriously about making new translations into English of the novels.
1: may be significant that when I was asked to review Cosmos by the New York Times, which indeed I did, I was given 700 words to do so. That's how much in 1968, which was the date of the American first edition, they thought Gobrovich was worth 700 words.
4: Bentham is interested in uh, translating, again, War and Peace, we might suggest, um, to Gombrowicz.
2: That probably has to do with Gorbachev and Reagan. Uh, Mr. Simon, Mr.
4: Simon,
5: Simon or Ms. Sontag, uh, have any idea why uh, Alfred Knopf was never interested in Gombrowicz before Alfred Knopf became Standard Oil? referring to the original
4: Mr. Mal. He was, he was interested in um, much the European literature. i was wondering if you have any information on that. Uh, you've talked a lot about um, the antecedents of uh writing. I wonder if uh, Mr. Govatsky mentioned the connection with Kundra, if anyone else would pick up on that, it might suggest who else besides Milan Kundera um, picks up on Gombrowicz's tradition. I don't
3: think so. He's very different.
1: But in his new book of essays, which is really reprints of previously published work, Kundera repeatedly cites Gombrowicz as one of his heroes and there are some wonderful uh, tributes to him scattered through this book called The Art of the Novel.
3: That's his writing.
1: And I think one can see an influence too, incidentally.
4: Between Beckett and Gombrowicz. That what? Samuel Beckett.
2: Beckett
0: and Would anyone like to ask a question?
4: <laughs> well.
0: No, could you come and, and ask it from. Th- well it's not just a question of us, it's the whole audience. I can answer
5: question
4: about Oh good. Wait. I can great. we are all still in the process of discovering Gombrowicz and not only here but also in Poland, as I understand. And I was wondering if uh, you could point to somebody who started the discovery of Gombrowicz and when did that happen? What right. author or a
5: person? Right. Uh, I would like to, to answer the first question and second question. All right, first question, Beckett and Gombrowicz. <coughs> Beckett is concerned, basically, with uh, time as a destructive force, which destroys us and uh, is uh, the only thing we have. This is, uh, in, in Beckett, Man is confronted, uh, uh, confronting the mute, uh, indifferent world, and the only reality for Beckett is that we are destroyed by time. Uh, Gombrowicz is uh, concerned with interhuman world. Constantly, uh, people are confronted by other people. This is interhuman church, as he defines. We live in an interhuman church. We live inside a cocoon created by our constant uh, presence of humans to humans. So that's a basic difference between Beckett. I should say.
0: And could I? Could I? Yes. Yeah. Make a, a sort of parallel comment to that: that Beckett could be described as someone who who is obsessed by the comedy of senility. And. Gombrowicz by the tragedy of youthfulness.
5: No, in this respect, Gombrowicz was uh, was uh, tragically aware of the ugliness of adulthood but and I mean, of, particularly of aging, aging, of aging. But the
0: fo- but in Beckett, everyone is old. Even the earliest Beckett books, people are old. When Beckett was writing as a young man of his twenties, his principal characters were always elderly. Yeah,
5: there is no fascination with youth in Beckett. Yeah. Uh, a second question, who uh, started? Gombrowicz was, uh, uh, um, after pu- the publication of Ferde Durk, uh, Gombrowicz became an idol of the young generation and he had uh, fervent admirers during the war. Under the Nazi occupation, there were admirers of Gombrowicz in Warsaw. <coughs> and then after the war, he was uh, put in cold storage for political reasons. Uh, which doesn't mean that an underground current of Gombrowicz's uh, uh, presence and uh, admiration for Gombrowicz didn't survive uh, in those decades until in 1956 uh, it was permitted to, again, to speak of Gombrowicz and to publish uh, his books. However, Gombrowicz was very sensitive to the question of censorship and he didn't like to have his books mutilated by censorship. Uh, he uh, married his companion, uh, Rita Labros uh, shortly before his death, and left uh, in his last will a stipulation that either they publish all his works in their entirety or none. And for several years, there was a tug of war between Polish publishers and 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 uh, Rita Gombrowicz who was with an admirable person and who's, who was very faithful to his uh, will and at last uh, on the of late uh, agreement was signed which was violated by the state publisher because they they introduced some cuts into uh, into the diaries so it was the presence of Gombrowicz was uh, subterranean for a long time and uh, on the surface for a, uh, um, for a short time. But let us distinguish in Poland between presence for a certain elite and the number of dissertations and papers written by, uh, by Gombrowicz when his books were not accessible in Poland. It, it's tremendous, it has been tremendous. Just like in my case, they have been writing. Uh, my books, uh, in general, cannot be found in Poland, but they write dissertations.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I can say something about uh, Gombrowicz's international reputation, because I was living in a good part of the 1960s in Paris, and that's where I first heard of Gombrowicz, and the people who told me about him and recommended that I read him in French, well, first of all, there was a, a Polish literary critic named Kot who told me about the, the big three, Witkacy, uh, uh, Bruno Schulz, and Gombrowicz, but then shortly after, I heard about Gombrowicz from other French uh, writers and people who were seriously interested in literature, and not only did I hear about him, I heard about him as someone who they thought of as rather well-known. I mean, not somebody known to the general public, but somebody, an, an established reputation. What had happened, of course, is that Gombrowicz did come back to Europe in 1963. He was brought back by a Ford Foundation fellowship, and he spent a year in Berlin, 63, 64. And then he settled in the south of France, in, in Vence. Uh, but he quickly acquired a considerable French literary reputation. He was considered in the 60s already a major European, 20th century European writer in France, and in no other European country. And so it really his foreign reputation really started in France. By the time he died, I was actually in France when he died, it was on the front pages of the papers that this great Polish writer had died in 1969. It was, it was a, uh, he was an important writer there. Uh, because of that reputation, he was then translated into English, but it didn't matter very much and as John said, he was only given <laughs> 700 words. It took a much longer time um, in other other, uh, languages. But it really began in in France. France was 15 years ahead because he was there. The second country, of course, was Germany, uh, where he became quite well-known in the 60s and the early 70s.
5: May I add something? Uh, Gombrowicz's great success in Sweden, uh, success of his plays, enormous success uh, of those plays, made him a very serious candidate uh, to the Nobel Prize. And he would have received the Nobel Prize if not the prize of publisher, publishers for mentor. He received that, and of course, it, somehow it killed the chance.
0: I think that it is important to say that Gombrowicz's European reputation was really made by his plays. It was a bit like Beckett. Beckett became really famous through his plays. Uh, And and Gombrowicz's uh, plays were already uh, uh, widely performed in Europe in the 60s. I saw saw, uh, Gombrowicz's plays in Paris in in the 1960s in major uh, productions, big theaters. They, of course, as far as I know, have not been done here. But they've been done all over Europe, and they were done in Poland course, in the 70s. The play, perhaps the uh, uh, books were not officially translated, yeah, but first, the plays were performed in the yeah, National first Theater.
5: first to, to have the uh, plays
0: performed.
1: Yes. It's maybe amusing to consider that the four-mentor prize in, I guess it was 68, almost went to Gombrowicz for pornographia. but Mary McCarthy was the head of the jury, and she said after 50 pages, she threw the book away in disgust, which elicited from Gombrowicz the remark that she was a third or fourth rate novelist. Who is she anyway? Uh, But then the next year he won it for Cosmos. I guess that's the way that it worked.
3: And what is funny now, but now, uh, in Poland, in Polish TV, uh, after news, which are very surreal, some actors are reading Gombrowicz. (laughs) Uh,
4: So, you know, it's exists
5: in very interesting ways. <laughs> <laughs> From his
3: diary? From his diary. Yeah. It's uh, the most... Uh, that's lot, you can imagine.
4: Excuse me. Uh, anybody knows if transatlantic was translated into English? No. No. no? no.
0: No, that that, that is certainly worth mentioning. There's one major novel of Gombrowicz that's never been translated. It hasn't even been badly translated. Uh, There are three that have been, uh, Pornografia, Cosmos, and of course, Ferdadurka, the first, and Transatlantic has not been translated. Possessed, I'm sorry.
1: A rather obscure Polish literary man, a fellow called Leopold Tiermont, once described the plays of Gombrowicz as Beaumarchais rewritten by Alfred Jarry which is
2: kind of interesting Um, I I think probably it's time for people to refresh themselves if they wish I should add perhaps immediately to avoid confusions that the um, bar part of the reception is a cash bar but a reasonably priced one and I would just like to thank all our panelists if I may very warmly for their contribution to this evening